0: Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market.
1: You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. So Devin, everyone knows that you're a seller, but you are also a buyer. You buy things for your team for our company Um, and of course with COVID things have changed um, as it has for every single person. So I'm curious, how has the way that you buy particularly software or services for your, you know, on the business side, how has that changed over COVID?
0: Yeah, I only buy two things, Sheena, which is software for gong and sneakers for the family. Uh, The latter has not changed at all. It's it's if I see it, I like it, I buy it. Um, For software, how has it changed? I would say, now this is a trend that we've been hearing, so this won't seem too groundbreaking. But I really like to get as much information as possible. And when I reach out for a demo, it's because I've already narrowed it to like two, maybe three companies that I think can solve it because I've, you know, consumed their content, looked at their website. But even before I'll reach out for a demo or like take a second call is I always ask someone in my network if they use this software. So that's kind of a little bit about me. What's changed is I think as soon, uh, I don't know if it's like in, in correlation or not, my patience has gotten low for the amount of time invested in the evaluation mm-hmm. because I front-loaded so much of my time on the information part, right? Awareness, figuring out what I like, going to their you know their product pages and like really scoping it out before I call. So now when I'm in a sales cycle, and I know as soon as I click that demo button, I'm in it,
2: mm-hmm.
0: I wanna get from, what what do you have? to signing as quickly as possible without skipping steps and being irresponsible with the evaluation process.
1: Yeah, I think that's I mean, for me, it's the same. Now time is just more precious. And a lot of the basic information, you can get that on your own. You don't need a one hour meeting to walk through like introductory slides from a vendor. Like that's just, that's a total waste of time from my perspective. Yeah. like show me what I can't see on my own that's not online or I can't talk to some, you know, a friend to get that information. Um, and that's, what I think, where a bit of the conflict comes in because you have sellers who have this like well-defined sales process that their managers and enablement is pushing on them that you must do all of these six, seven, eight, nine steps. Yep. And the buyer is like, hey, whoa, <laughs> can we just get to number four, step number four yep. and skip all of that?
0: Yeah, no, it's a, it's very true. It's where the friction often uh, starts in a sales process is expectations, right? And mm-hmm. desires is you know people have uh, what they expect the process to feel like, and buyers have or sellers have what they need it to look like. Um, ironically, the thing I do like the most, and where where I think I actually get one over now that I'm kind of thinking through it, is when I present the problem. Like, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's why I clicked request demo on your site. And if they can show me a bigger problem or a deeper problem than i had already you know kind of perceived and how they can solve that that will win me over as well because that's that if you go back that's the information i didn't get online or i didn't get through you know backdoor channeling so that's that's me that's a buyer if if, for if you're wondering sneakers is much easier you could sell me sneakers in 10 minutes maybe less i don't even try them on anymore um but the reason we're even bothering talking about this is because we hung out with Jonathan Lister uh, who leads uh, sales over at LinkedIn and he had a really interesting concept which is so obvious in hindsight, but he was like sellers spend their entire day you know week year in a sales process in multiple sales processes. Buyers alternatively only spend a few you know fra- a fraction or a percentage of their, working life in a sales process, buying something, which I think is really interesting because it shares a mindset, right? Like salespeople want to be, you know, they want the sales process to move as much as possible, but they're constantly in it versus us as buyers. We just said, we want to be in and out as quickly as possible. Cause we just don't enjoy the process of investing time there.
1: Exactly. Exactly. He shares a ton of data from a research report that LinkedIn just conducted on their state of sales. Um, and I found it really, really interesting and fascinating about how you can leverage some of this data and understand whether or not you're actually close to your buyer and on yeah. the same page as them.
0: Yep, I love the state of sales report. It's an annual report LinkedIn puts out. I've, I quote it every, every year when it comes out, I find a new little, little tidbit and I quote it in some of my, uh, presentations. So yeah, I'm a big fan of it. We walk through some of that data and their buyer first mentality, uh, that they, they run at LinkedIn. So let's go, uh, let's go hang out with
1: Jonathan. Wait, Devin, we forgot one thing. We did. How could we? Guess what, everybody? We have a huge announcement. Celebrate Together is coming up in just a few short days.
0: Sheena, I am a big fan of Celebrate. Now, that might seem obvious because I work at Gong, but I genuinely love the event. And there's something for everybody, because there's going to be Gong Labs data revealed for the first time, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be presenting there some brand new data on team selling. There's some fantastic panels with sales leaders, ranging from paychecks to drift. And you also get a fantastic keynote from our CMO, Udi Lettergore for folks who want to know what's happening in the world of revenue intelligence.
1: And that's not it. I it's will be not. your host. So... Mm-hmm you enjoy tuning in to us, you'll actually get to hear both from myself and from Devin. But wait, there's more. Headlining the entire event is the amazing Angela Duckworth. If you haven't read her book, she is amazing. She talks about grit. That's all, that is her passion.
0: She also has, I think, the number one or one of the top most watched TED Talks on grit as well, which gets it's you fired up, gets me ready to go. Monday morning stands no chance. If I've seen that TED talk and definitely not, not even well, it's last, but it's not least by any means is there's a huge portion of this event for our friends out in Europe.
1: Yes, we are excited to host our first event specifically dedicated to all of our listeners and attendees based in Europe. You'll get to hear from our CEO. You'll get to hear from some amazing sales leaders uh, from a variety of companies that are based uh, in Europe. So don't miss out. The event is coming up on July 21st. Get your tickets today. They're free. Celebrate.gong.io. The link is also in the show notes.
0: See you there. Jonathan, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Welcome to Reveal. I am happy to be here, Devin and Sheen. Nice to see you both. Looking forward to the conversation. Same here. So you're the VP of Global Sales Solutions at LinkedIn. As just a really quick intro, can you tell us a bit about your role and uh, what you're focused on this year?
2: Yeah, sure. So I, I manage one of LinkedIn's three commercial lines of business. I manage a team we call Sales Solutions. And we, it, we sell sales intelligence products into the sales community. So we sell Sales Navigator. We sell Sales Insights. Uh, I love my job. I run a sales team of people selling sales products into the sales community. So we are all things sales. Uh, we live and breathe the sales community, the sales industry, and you know, for the last couple of years, we've been super focused on really figuring out how we create more value for our customers. We've been very focused on like how do we create that value, how do we measure it, you know, how do we talk about it, uh, and we're it's it's been super. Um, uh, inspiring to really see the amount of value we created for our customers, and kind of see them expand, see their footprint expand, their customers grow because of it. So it's all to me that's all very exciting stuff. Uh, and increasingly, you know, we are very focused on the idea that sales and B two B sales can do a much better job of putting buyers first, of really pulling buyers to the center of uh, selling. Uh, which by the way sounds really obvious to lots of people who aren't in sales but if you've been around sales as i have for the better part of uh, you know 25 years uh you know putting buyers truly first and you know selling to buyers in a way that they want and need to be sold to is done is, is sort of not done in the main in sales for lots of for lots of reasons we can we can get into but we're now entering a period where it is becoming Uh, more and more important to pull buyers to the center of the conversation, sell to buyers in a way that they want to be sold to, that they need to be sold to, and increasingly that they are demanding that they be sold to. And I think that's a a fairly sweeping change that is happening uh, across all of B2B selling. So we're super focused on that, both this year and in the coming years.
0: Well, Jonathan, we are in great company, or you're in great company, we're also in great company. But uh, I describe my sales career in a very similar way, which is like Leonardo DiCaprio's movie Inception, salespeople selling sales software to other salespeople, and there's nothing better. So you describe, you're you the only other person I've heard describe it like that. So I know I know your passion is. Yeah, yeah, very meta, and I love it.
1: Uh, and your career journey has been pretty interesting. You've been at LinkedIn for over a decade in a variety of roles. You started out as country manager, and then now you're leading up this uh, BU, as you talked about, what were some of the interesting um, roadblocks or just twists and turns in your journey as you got where you are today? Um, and actually maybe it kind of predates the LinkedIn days.
2: Yeah, I think if it predates the LinkedIn days, I mean, I'll be honest with you, I love, love selling, but I never, like a lot of people maybe, I never started out you know, wanting to be in sales. And I often, like I think we often, as salespeople we often think about that, like who really, who, who wanted, to, like whose aspiration was it to become a salesperson? Uh, and I'm sure there are lots of people like that. Uh, it wasn't mine, like originally, um, but you know, I love, love problem solving. And ultimately I just love delivering solutions. Like I find that very, very gratifying, frankly, whether it's internal or external. Uh, and so, you know, that kind of guided me towards sales fairly early on. I, I also love uh, risk-taking and uh, I love learning. And I think I've, I've tried to build a career with lots of risk-taking built into it and lots of learning built into it. So sales wasn't always like a up and to the right path for me. There was a lot of lateral moves. There were, there were down moves. There were, you know, kind of loop-de-loops in my career. Uh, but for me, it was all about learning. A lot of it was about risk-taking. Uh, and at the same time, you know, I continue to think that sales, especially when I started out, sales had something of a bad rap. And, you know, from the very beginning of my career, I, I, I felt that was like a very worthy challenge, that there, was, there were great things about sales. Sales was always about helping people. B2B sales or, or frankly, any kind of sales done well was about helping people solve problems. Uh, and I always loved that piece of it and felt that there was a better way to do it. And what I'm so excited about, uh, you know, at LinkedIn, the job I do at LinkedIn, is that's what we do every single day. And, you know, I think people at LinkedIn, we come to work because we really... Both feel and can see that we are helping sell salespeople and companies become more productive every day, and it's like super gratifying. So that's a, that's kind of what's driven me throughout my career was that desire to learn, that desire to problem solve, and and to some extent that desire to take some risks.
1: I love all of those. Um, on the risk piece, what was one of those risks that you could highlight for the audience that you took? Got to know what's the big,
0: one has to jump <laughs> to your mind, Jonathan.
1: Your well, well lo-
2: lots of them. I mean, I've worked at small companies. I've worked, uh, you know, for startups initially. Um, before startups were cool, I worked at startups, um, and I've done jobs that didn't maybe make a lot of sense on paper I've, for me anyway. You know, I I've, I've, early on I was an editor. I um, I worked in production, like media production, uh, and I did that all. Uh, you know, in the knowing that I had an aspiration to lead people and ultimately to, you know, be a sales leader. I felt like these were really interesting and important competencies to acquire along the way. Understanding how products are built, understanding how to create value. I've been in operations roles for a long time, so understanding. You know how to make businesses great and how to drive efficiency was important to me. So lots of lateral moves. A lot of them looked like risks, and frankly, probably were like short-term risks. But you know, I, I like to think in the in the long arc of a career. And you know, the reality is careers are, are long. We uh, we get we get swayed and and we hear of stories of very short careers, but in fact, careers are are long. And so, in the long arc of a career, you know, doing a lot of like really interesting things that excited me and. You know, we're challenging. It was was more important to me than again this sort of up and to the right linear, uh, you know, progress through you know one division or one one industry.
1: So LinkedIn has changed quite a bit during the pandemic. You know, there's been a tremendous increase in remote job po- postings that we've never seen that before. You know, in this space and beyond. Can you talk a little bit more about how that's affected your business?
2: I, I can, although I think that as I thought about this question a little bit, I think about this question a little bit. The the you know, LinkedIn is really a proxy for what's happening in the professional world. And so I think that for me, the more interesting maybe piece of this is what does it mean for the macro? What does it mean for the professional world or sales as a, as, uh, as an industry? And, you know, we've clearly been in this time of massive change uh, in the last 18 months. You know, the secular shift to remote work. And for those of us in sales, the secular shift to remote Buying and selling has been, you know, super profound. And, you know, we've all kind of lived through this, um, you know, to, with, with varying degrees of success over the last, the last year and a half, but I think we've seen some pretty amazing shifts that have happened quite quickly. And there's this, you know, there's clearly this open question about how much of these shifts will, will remain, will stick around and we're all trying to kind of work through those, but, you know, we, we saw things like, um, when, when we pulled buyers through the recent, uh, through through COVID and through the recent secular shift to to kind of remote buying. And we asked buyers and sellers, like, what's happening in your world and, and how are you doing? One of the things, the most interesting thing that came back was that buyers are pretty comfortable in a remote world. In fact, buyers, by and large, like working remotely, like working digitally. They're more effective. And that makes sense, right? Like buyers, a large part of their world was um, you know in a physical world was you know not part of the buying process. They had to do a lot of like meeting people that were inefficient. You know, they had to go around and, and in person, you know, meet with a lot of people on their buying committees and there was just a lot of inefficiency in their world. And a lot of that has gone away through digital. So you know we're hearing from buyers that they're very comfortable with this with this sort of digital selling and the shift to remote work. That of course will or may have like material consequences for how sales is done, right? If if buyers decide that buying is best done digitally, it will become increasingly difficult for sellers to operate in a physical world, whether they want to or not. And so I think there's this big open question really around like, what do buyers think and what do buyers want to do, uh, you know, going forward? And something like 70% of buyers, at least for the ones we surveyed, the 400 uh, odd we surveyed, 70% of them want to keep working 50% of the time, they want to work remotely 50% of the time. So that's going to have material consequences just on how selling is done. So if you're a salesperson, almost regardless of how much you like digital selling or remote selling or don't like it, uh, we got to pay attention to our buyers and really start to understand how our buyers like this shift to, to remote uh, and maybe the we, we've we've certainly just overall seen a a, ri- a rise in remote work. I think remote work postings have gone up like 5x on LinkedIn. Now again, the question is do those level out or do those kind of retreat back as as we go back to work uh, and back to work physically? And so I think that's still kind of very much an open question. And maybe one more thing I think we found or I found pretty interesting over the last 18 months with respect to the the data we see on LinkedIn. We saw the, the job postings for industries that support or partner with sales have also gone up pretty dramatically. So functions like customer success, functions like sales readiness, even functions like sales operations, although slightly less slow, have grown massively over the last couple of years. I think both customer success and sales readiness have grown something like you know 200% over the last couple of years. So those functions are growing extremely quickly, and they they really kind of bolster the idea that uh, you know sales is become, sales is growing up, and sales is becoming uh, you know well defined and well structured, but also that it can be done digitally. And a lot of it, a lot of this, the functions that we're building up are functions that support remote selling. So lots going on in sales, lots of uh, lots of um, you know movement in the direction that supports digital selling, and a real open question around buyers and how much buyers want to continue with remote or digital selling.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. It seems so obvious now, but even, even having sold, I never thought of this. As a sales professional, your entire career is in a sales cycle. Buyers spend a very small percentage of their year in an actual buying cycle, right? And so I think that's really interesting to kind of think of that mindset and think, hey, we have to meet, as sellers, we have to meet them where they are when they're there. Um, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah.
2: Well, here's something for salespeople to think about. We
0: pulled buyers and we asked them, like, how
2: do you spend your day? And 17% of a buyer's time is spent talking to sellers. 17% talking to all sellers, every seller, right? So, you know, you're one of that as a seller, you're one of you get that you get some sliver of that right. 17%. You know, the majority of their time is spent doing research, online and offline research, which, you know, that that supports, of course, the idea that, you know, buyers do a lot of research and are well-prepared. You know, they're, whatever they are, 70% of the way down the sales cycle before they talk to a salesperson. So they're doing tons of research to get, that's how they spend their day. And by the way, the other portion of their day is spent talking to their internal champions or their, uh, the buyer circle. So that that literally their their day is split into those quadrants, right? Uh, And so as a salesperson, you know, you're only getting a small sliver of their time to begin with. And whether that's digital or, in person, you know, is, is, is very much an open question.
1: Yeah. It's interesting. Like I've seen so many sellers post on LinkedIn of how they're craving to like, get back in the field and go meet with their customers and their buyers. I don't think I've seen a single post of a buyer saying I am craving to meet with my sales rep or where, like, you know, get back in that buying cycle. So how do we come and, and meet in the middle and, and make everybody happy? It's going to be really interesting to see that.
2: Yeah. I, I, it will be. And I, I don't, I mean, none of us know. We're just kind of looking at mm-hmm. sort of this play out and anticipating. I and mean, one, one thing we, we do know, going back to this idea of buyer first, we know that like if you only get, you know, if you're getting a small sliver of buyer's time, of course it has to be super highly effective. And you have to figure out how to drive value in that time, in that very limited time. And, you know, the trends are changing. Like it's the, the reason we're moving to this buyer first world is, you know, at the, at the, at the end of the day, because sellers increasingly have to deliver value from the very first interaction. And buyers tell us they have to deliver value from the very first interaction or you don't get a second chance. And so the days of like being able to do discovery calls and having all this time to like gather data, it doesn't exist anymore. For lots of buyers, if a seller shows up, whether it's in person or, or, or digitally, you have to deliver value from the very first interaction in order to get a second interaction or to proceed down the sales cycle. That's, and that's what's driving this, this buyer first phenomenon. Buyers are doing the research. They know a lot, they know a lot, they know everything about your competitor because it's all public. They know all about your product because it's, for the most part, it's all public. They want to know how you add value. They want to know like increasingly, how is your company going to advise
0: me? going to consult me and add value to what I already know about the products. I'm loving this already, Jonathan, because uh, as you know, we're all about opinions versus reality and you've dropped at least a handful of stats which is, which is fantastic. We love that. Um, and I want to go into the kind of buyer first mindset, right? And, uh, I saw on LinkedIn that it referenced the, uh, the new state of sales, uh, 2021 report that LinkedIn puts out every year. And it said that, uh, I'm reading from it to make sure I get it right here. 63% of sellers say they always put buyers first, yet only 23% of buyers feel that that's true. So one in three, I think it has to do with the changes I talked about.
2: I, I think there's a couple of reasons so the buying and selling process has changed and if i use myself as a as a quick analog you know when i started selling a long time ago I was a b2b salesperson and i literally knocked on doors my job was to knock on doors and to wait in waiting rooms and when i finally got a meeting with somebody it was really to show them the features and benefits of my product right well all that features and benefits stuff is of zero value right and it, it, sales used to be about essentially asymmetry of information right sales had all the information about your product and you meted it out in sort of dribs and drabs to buyers as you as you felt sort of did uh, you know had benefit for you as a salesperson. Well, that you know clearly no longer is the way. It hasn't been for a long time. But buyers can access all this information about features and benefits, so that that sort of asymmetry of information has closed. Buyers have all this information now, and so salespeople have to deliver value. They have to add these insights. And I, I use that word insights because I think increasingly. The job of a salesperson is to show how your product portfolio, your your suite of services, uh, adds value and maybe adds insights, or you know can help your customer um, you know achieve their goals in a way that they wouldn't be able to do without your product and services. That's your job. It's not to talk about the product and the services anymore. And so I think this disparity exists because. You know, lots of cases sellers aren't there yet. Their organizations, by and large, haven't backed them up. By the way, their organizations haven't helped salespeople get to the place where they have those insights and that value uh, to talk about. And so they're still they're still selling features and benefits, or they're pitching with templates, or they're using stock information, none of which adds value. And so that's that's the disparity. And in lots of cases, sellers, by the way, know that they're doing that. That they're but they're um, they're sort of constrained by their organization. So I think over time, we'll see organizations start to you know, change that approach, and then we'll see salespeople start to change that approach. But that's largely um, kind of how I think how this is playing out right now. But maybe one more thing that I think is actually the real shoe-dropping or kind of so-what moment is that, it's, it's yes, there's this disparity of how buyers and sellers perceive like how much value is being added. But at the end of the day, this is about – Trust, like it's increasingly about trust, and increasingly buyers say that trust uh, is. I think trust ranks sort of like the second highest dimension of the sales process. Buyers put trust above price. Right? If you, if you don't like, you can have the greatest price, but if they like trust, they're not going, they're not going to buy from you. And so the the problem with all of this is really the trust gap. And something, the majority, to be very clear, and I think this was in the state of sales report as well. Fifty one percent of Buyers view sellers as untrustworthy.
0: Yeah. Wow. No shock why people don't sprint towards sales careers. I, I mean,
2: kind of full stop, right? Like half of buyers view salespeople as untrustworthy, right? And trust is important. And so forgetting everything else, we just have to solve that trust gap, right? And the trust gap gets solved by putting buyers first. The trust, gets, get, trust gap gets solved by, you know, Providing solutions Mm -hmm. to customers, solutions to problems that they have, that they say they have, that are important to them. And so increasingly, we have to move in that direction.
0: In sales, you want to make your buyers purchasing decisions as easy as possible to win their business. Jonathan emphasizes that salespeople must adapt their selling to the way buyers want to be sold to. LinkedIn's State of Sales report highlights that 50% of buyers say working remotely has made purchasing decisions easier, and 70% of those buyers want to work remotely at least half of the time in the future, so sellers must adjust accordingly. This can take many forms, like pricing transparency, mastering digital interactions, and discovering new ways to consistently deliver value. In a remote selling environment, it can be hard to see exactly what your reps are doing well and what can be improved. That's why it's important to look at data to see how remote selling has impacted your company. Through these insights, you'll be able to see if your reps are adapting to changing buyer habits and adjust accordingly to ensure you're on track to hit your revenue targets.
1: As a salesperson coming in to work with a new client, you're dealing with the experiences that they've had with prior sellers. So maybe that prior Man or woman was not, you know, was not trustworthy, or they did something that turned off the client, and now you're you have to overcome that hurdle, so it's even harder for you.
2: Yeah, totally. Like uh, part of it, you're right. If you have a brand that has not looked because brand ranks pretty high on, on on dimensions of value, and if you work for a company that has had a bad brand in the past, then yeah, you have to overcome that as well. Just to be really clear, I think there are a set of you know, activities that a lot of salespeople do today. And just to be really clear on what we've heard from buyers on the, the kinds of things that they consider, um, I, I guess I would call them deal killers, but, but essentially like the things that don't engender trust or don't put buyers first. I mean, it's, of course, it's things like misleading information. Like that's, that's not surprising that's, that, that, that that is at the top of the list. But it's things like uh, not understanding the buyer's company. And that, again, that sounds obvious, but I mean, we need to go beyond sort of the, the, the first level information about a, a, a buyer's company. They're talking about like the strategy, like understanding my company's strategy. Like we, buyers should, sellers should know that going into an interaction. And so the bar is becoming higher for what is considered, uh, you know, deal killing type of behavior on salespeople. Increasingly though, it's things also like cold calling like cold calling buyers is increasingly becoming one of the areas that, that buyers consider deal killers. So I think there's a, there, you know, there's a very explicit uh, specific list of things that sellers uh, are still doing that buyers consider deal killers. I'd be
0: curious to know if it's the cold call itself, which is an interruption or if it's the way the cold call is handled, right? So it's the way you're interrupting. I don't know if you have insight into that Jonathan or maybe a, a personal stance.
2: I mean, increasingly, there's a privacy piece to this. Uh, you know, one of the things that's happening that we observe is you know, there's this sort of conflating of B2C and B2B, and companies like Amazon and, and Netflix have done a wonderful job of training us as individuals to expect services in a certain way, and that is porting over to B2B. And so buyers are expecting that same level of personalization. Like buyers increasingly want things you know, personalized. They want it round the clock. And a lot of that's, I think, driven out of, like, the personal experience, the B2C experience. And in B2C, you know, there's a high bar for privacy. Amazon or, or you know, Netflix knows who you are, and they treat you like an individual. They, they don't they don't cold call you. And I think that, that 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 idea of just how sort of invasive cold calling is, is bleeding into B2B in the same kind of way. People, it's, you know, you only have one phone. And you, you know, Amazon's on your phone and, but so are the people who are, you know, calling you for work. And I think if a cold call comes through on your phone, like it's increasingly, whether it's for work or personal, it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. Netflix is making it hard for me to be sellers because if you think of your your behavior and your mindset on Netflix, it's, I expect you to have everything that I want when I want it. And sometimes I don't know what I want, but I want something. So tell me what I want.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which
0: is like the recommendation panel. So, so yeah. Yeah, I think it's a great observation. I mean, I by the way, slightly maybe
2: a, ta- a slight tangent to this conversation, but I do, you yeah, know, I think we will get into a world in B2B selling where, uh, among other things, I think that the, you know, recommendations will become increasingly important, like data-driven recommendations. Uh, things like, um, uh, you know, sellers will start to be known, their reputation will start to be well-known and well-documented because of your digital footprint, right? And I think buyers will increasingly be able to choose sellers and salespeople. They'll have a a really good idea of who the strongest salespeople are, uh, you know, from their digital footprint and they'll, you know, they'll start to pick and choose. And I think that's... Yeah, I think we can expect to see
0: that coming in the next couple of years. Imagine, uh, reps are like, you know, they have Yelp, they have Yelp, uh, reviews and you're like, Oh, Devin's only 3.2 sales rep. I'm right. buying Gong. I don't want to deal with him. Scroll, scroll, scroll. Oh, Sheena, she's 4.9. Great reviews. I'll, I'll click her and, and start the sales process with her specifically.
2: Yeah, pick your rep. And if you look at LinkedIn, like, you, you know, a lot of your reputation is, is known yeah. and, and clear on LinkedIn and, and, uh, and we'll get more clear, over time, like the, the, the great relationships you have, the strong relationships, you know, will become known and will become evident.
1: Mm-hmm. So speaking of data, what data do you leverage when, uh, you know, working with your team to make sure that they're putting buyers first?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. The data that we look at is mostly customer data. So you can start from, you know, the question is like, are we creating value? for I mean, that, maybe, that, maybe that's, that's the best sort of proxy for are we acting a buyer first way is are we creating value for our customers and so we have a metric for value that we, we look at and uh, we measure all of our customers against this value metric to see how much value they're getting so one is we, we look at the value uh two we look at things that are maybe a little more traditional like like growth like retention you know growth and, well retention and growth especially a certain kind of growth is a great proxy for value, right? Customers will grow typically when they're, when they're getting value. Uh, we're starting to look at metrics like quality revenue, like high quality revenue versus low quality revenue. So revenue that comes from growth, uh, revenue comes from customers who are, who are growing, again, as, as good proxies. Uh, we, have, we have some more internal metrics that we look at actual individuals, like there's a set of behaviors that we expect salespeople increasingly to do. And there are certain ways to measure those. There are certain activities that we ask them to do that help them, that help us understand the value that they're creating with a sales model that we built. Um, I think Devin, you'd, you'd ask the question about how we, or maybe what we ask our salespeople to do that sort of exhibits buyer first behavior. We have a, we've created kind of a, a sales model or a rubric that we, we follow. Uh, I mean, the, the, the very quick way to think about it is because they're all behaviors that I think salespeople are doing differently than they have been in the past. You know, One is we're encouraging all of our salespeople to learn a lot before they go in. And that's different from a discovery call because this is mostly done digitally. It's mostly done on your own, or at least it's mostly done before you ever talk to a customer. So, so, so learning before we do anything uh, is essential. Uh, the second one uh, is sharing and sharing really, really readily and this shows up in the state of sales as one of the deal killers is, or sorry, one of the things that buyers consider buyer first is sellers who share information beyond just the product that they're selling. So those sellers who share competitive information, and again, it's all out there, but salespeople who share competitive information and do it, uh, you know, coming from the uh, sort of a front foot, uh, we consider a really great buyer first activity. So we encourage our salespeople to share beyond just our information, share competitive information. Uh, We expect them to solve problems. Like, and so we ask them what problems they're solving. We look, when we look at our accounts and our account reviews, we look at what problems are being solved and we try to map those to problems that customers want to be solved. Uh, And then the last one is the value metric, is how much value we're we're delivering. So we ask all of our sales reps to go through those and we have various ways to to measure each of them. I think we do all those things, by the way, that's how we, think about building trust. We think if we get you know through a sales motion, if we can do all those activities, if we can learn and share and problem solve and deliver value, we'll build trust.
1: I love the first thing that you mentioned, which was like that value metric that you track for each client. Are you able to elaborate at all on that or is it something that's proprietary?
2: I, you know, I can tell you it's, you know, our, we sell uh, software product we sell SaaS software product so it's it's largely an engagement metric that that um, you know, we know that if customers engage with the product certain ways they'll get a lot of value out of it so we look at that engagement metric
0: as a, uh, a proxy for value
2: and I think a lot, lots of companies can can can
1: do a version of this sure that's helpful thanks
0: yeah I find that interesting I liked all of it too uh, I, I was admittedly spot checking you Jonathan you know you're he like hey buyer first here's the five things we do everything was mutual with the buyer it wasn't like 20, you know, 20 calls a day or, you know, working nine to five specific hours, everything was like, okay, there's, what, what is the reciprocation of that, right? Which is something i talk about a lot, like sales activity is something a sales rep does that's outbound, sales engagements when it's reciprocated, right? And that's what really matters. And I like that all the, all, all five points were, were very much focused on that, that latter part. Um, Last question for you before we get to the last question. Uh, Are there any pieces of data that you leverage that some sales leaders might be surprised to hear?
2: Uh, I do a lot of qualitative um, sort of data. So so we're a very data-driven company, and we have like, you know, really great uh, sort of quantitative data, and we use all of that. But I, I think the really... The piece that rounds it out is the qualitative data. And so I do a lot of what you know, maybe we consider LinkedIn sort of dot connecting is checking in for signals that maybe don't come from sales or come from other parts of the business that may be meaningful. Um, I do a lot of like just voice of customer, not so much spot checks, but just pay, talking to customers. And, um, and not necessarily about a certain subject, but really listening for what they're focused on and what they're working on. Uh, But maybe the one thing that we found really uh, effective last year was we did a lot of customer roundtables and they were slightly unstructured customer roundtables where we didn't come in as the expert. We came in as the facilitator and I found those were just the most robust conversations and, you know, they weren't all, again, they weren't about LinkedIn and they weren't certainly about our sales team, but they were about sentiment and they were about um, mood and I think broadly actually, and maybe. Maybe most importantly, they were about helping each other. This is about a a group of peers who were, you know, who were there to help each other through this. And I think in that respect, they were like incredibly helpful to everybody and to me. So I got we were doing probably one of those a
0: week or, you know, one every couple of weeks for the last year. I love that approach because I think it's easy to go, hey, let's get all these people that like us, you know, their clients or people we want to like us, let's get them in a room and let's tell them what to talk about, which is the thing, you know, selfishly we want. We want them to be aware of. Um, but when you, like you said, I, I think a semi-structured uh, structure actually works best, right? You're going to get the real voice of the customer, the things that are actually on their mind and that's what can guide you and give you more insight than necessarily, uh, Hey, here's this narrative we have. Uh, why, don't, why don't you all talk about it in a forced manner for an hour? Yeah. And I really
2: hope we don't lose that. And we're going to try not to, but I think we, these are the kinds of things we learned last year that I think have long-term benefit mm-hmm. that you know, we should, we should keep on doing these in certain in this kind of way. Um, but, you know, we're going, to, we're going to try to keep continuing to do that.
1: All right. We are at the tail end of the episode. So, Jonathan, we're going to ask you the same question we ask all of our amazing sales leaders that join us on Reveal, which is how would you describe sales in one word?
2: Well, you won't be surprised at this point, I don't think, to hear me say the one word I use to describe sales is value. That... The one thing I encourage all of our salespeople to do, whether you're new or been here forever, regardless of what our priority is that year or what the product is or whatever else, is every single interaction you have with a customer or a stakeholder or someone in the buyer circle, every single one, consider what value you're delivering in that interaction. That's it. And just go into that interaction and understand, like, you have 30 seconds or 30 minutes. Like, what's the value you're going to deliver? It's this scarce, precious use of time, the scarce resource. Like, if you, can, if you don't remember anything else, just remember, like, what is the value you want to get across in that time? Make that interaction a great use of time for the, for the buyer or the person across the table. Every interaction matters, so I'm going to go with value.
1: That's such a great gut check. And, you know, as you're putting together your agenda for any meeting that you have, make sure that's part of your, your you know, list as you're thinking through what you're going to talk about. Um, I love that. Well, Jonathan, it was such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, we had a blast and we hope you did too.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Great talking to you both. Hope to catch up soon. Thanks, Jonathan.
0: Every week, we bring you a micro action something to think about, or an action you can put into play today. One of the most profound stats in LinkedIn's state of sales report is that 65% of salespeople say they always put the buyer first, but only 23% of buyers actually feel that way. This is a classic example of data versus opinions because sometimes things are not as they seem. This week, think of how you can put your buyers first. This could mean going the extra mile to align your solution to the buyer's business needs instead of focusing on your features or giving information about your company, your industry that they can't find on their own. Get together with your reps this week and pick some top target accounts. Look at those accounts and figure out why they would want to buy your solution and create targeted pitches and outreach that will make them feel like their needs are being put first. Because at the end of the day, Showing buyers how you can help them achieve their goals will make them want to do business with you. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday.
1: And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there.
0: And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then.